Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Down a Rabbit Hole with me, your host, Cece Suarez. Today, we will be continuing our series about family annihilator cases. This week, we are going to be discussing Chris Watts and the Watts family murders. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Down a Rabbit Hole podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Viewer discretion is advised. As I've stated in our previous episodes regarding family annihilator cases, according to David Wilson of Birmingham City University, there are four different groups when it comes to family annihilators. Anomic, disappointed, self-righteous, and paranoid. The anomic killer sees his family as purely a status symbol when his economic status collapses, or rather when he doesn't have any use for them anymore, he sees them as a surplus. Therefore, he kills them all. The disappointed killer seeks to punish the family for not living up to his expectations and his ideals of family life. The self-righteous killer destroys the family to exact revenge upon the mother and an act that he blames her for. Finally, the paranoid killer kills their family in what they imagine to be an attempt to protect them from something even worse. Now, both of the cases that we've already covered, the John List case and the Martin Bergen case, those both fell into the paranoid killer category. Now, this one's going to be very interesting and I'm, again, not even going to say which one I think that Chris Watts falls into until the very end because, honestly, I don't know yet. But like I said, welcome back. I did take off a little bit of time from the podcast. I had a lot going on. Either way, though, I'm happy to be back, happy to have you back. And if there are any type of series topics or just one-off episode topics that you would like me to cover, please do go ahead and email me at downarabbitholepodcast at gmail.com, or you can also direct message me over on Instagram, and that is at downarabbitholepodcast. With this story, I think it's helpful to map out a timeline. However, before we get into that, I want to address the MLM multi-level marketing aspect of this case and just how much I believe that it really did play a big role in this story. However, it's not a, you know, main character or really a main aspect of this story. I think that it really does have a huge, a huge hand in what happened with this family in the background. Most of you know me from my YouTube channel and my content regarding multi-level marketing companies, but for the 1% that only listens to the podcast or maybe just stumbles upon this episode, let's go ahead and break down a few important factors regarding MLMs. Now, multi-level marketing companies are essentially product-based pyramid schemes. To answer the question is, quote, insert name of company here, a pyramid scheme, you have to look at the compensation plan. Are you being compensated more for recruiting and building a team rather than just selling the product? If the answer is yes, then yeah, it's a pyramid scheme. Now, it doesn't matter if you can make money without recruiting or make money just selling the products. It doesn't matter if there is a product to even sell or the fact that pyramid schemes are illegal. Just because something is illegal does not mean that it is not happening. Hence this podcast and the true crime genre in general, or why my husband who's in law enforcement is very busy at work every day. 
Also, it does not matter if you are able to out earn or outrank your upline, meaning the person who recruited you. That does not matter. That is not, that does not mean that a company is not or is a pyramid scheme. Also, just because the chain of command or the organizational chart and organizational structure of a corporation of a company is triangle shaped does not mean that it's a pyramid scheme. I get that constantly. And all of these things that I'm saying right now are really the most common rebuttals that I get in regards to multi-level marketing companies. But that one infuriates me probably the most because normal corporations, normal companies aren't based on recruiting people to join them and recruiting people to pay to join them. Also, who cares about other companies? We're not talking about that. We're talking about multi-level marketing companies. So the argument's invalid and not only is it invalid, but it's irrelevant. Now, in my opinion and in many experts' opinions, multi-level marketing companies are commercial cult. The cult culture breeds an environment where toxic positivity, undue influence, faith manipulation, misinformation, gaslighting, and fear-mongering really thrive. Now, speaking of thrive, that was actually the name of the multi-level marketing company that Shanann Watts was in. Technically, the company's called Lavelle, but most people call it Thrive or Lavelle Thrive since Thrive, and that's always in all capital letters. I feel like I have to scream it every time I see it. I won't though, because you know that would be rude of me to do to you. Thrive is the name of the products, but again, most people just call it Thrive since that is what they are actually selling. According to the company themselves, Lavelle Brands is a global health and wellness company dedicated to providing people with convenient access to high quality products known as Thrive. See, it's in all caps. I feel like I have to do that. Launched in 2012 by Jason Camper and Paul Gavetti, I'm sure I'm butchering that name, but oh well, that's not the point. Lavelle's mission is to help people live happier, healthier, fuller lives. Lavelle focuses on this mission by providing and producing tremendous products and offering individuals the opportunity to become brand partners and share Thrive with their friends, family, and others that they believe can benefit from better overall health and wellness. How vague is that? I don't know who produces the content on their website, but that was just horrible. It sounds like I'm trying to meet a certain word count. Now on their income disclosure statement, again, released by the company, it does state the community of Thrivers, that's what they call themselves again in all caps, is proud to share Thrive knowing that one, there is no sign up fee to become a customer or brand promoter. It is completely free. That doesn't make any sense because how can you become a customer but then also have it be free. You are not a customer if you are not spending money with a brand. So that's dumb. But what they're talking about is being a quote VIP customer, like with a lot of MLMs, you have to sign up, like there's a sign up fee for, for becoming a VIP customer and getting, you know, the free shipping and the flex ship and all that other stuff and like the discounts. And then also becoming a brand ambassador or brand promoter. It says there's no fee, meaning there's no uh, like starter kits, essentially, or there are, but you have the option of just signing up as a brand promoter and you don't, quote, have to. You're not required to get a starter kit. You can just sign up to do it, which how are you going to do that if you haven't tried the products before and you don't have the products? Number two, there are no purchase requirements to earn commissions. Number three, customers earn free products by referring to people to thrive. Number four, the product ships directly to the end customer rather than the brand promoter being forced to purchase and resell products. And number five, 
Lavelle, through its Thrive product line and its amazing community of brand partners, is committed to helping people around the world improve their lives. I don't know why number five had to be included on there. Seems a little a little weird to include that. But the income disclosure statement for the year 2020 also states the following absolutely abysmal statistics. And I will have this income disclosure statement along with a bunch of other pictures and references that I'm going to make in this episode on the carousel post, the feed post for this episode on Instagram. Again, that is at down a rabbit hole podcast on Instagram. And we do trivia and things like that too. So go have some fun over there with us. Now, like I said, according to the income disclosure statement, the bottom rank, just like most MLMs, it is very bottom heavy, which is ironic that they put that at the top, but it's very bottom heavy. And it looks like the percentage of brand promoters at the bottom that are active, meaning they are selling the product or recruiting someone is at 94.7%. And now that's just people who are selling the product. But then of that, the people within there that are selling the product and recruiting people, the team building aspect of it, it's 75.6% of people at the bottom. The average annual income for 2020 for people who were recruiting others was $650 a year. That's atrocious. That is horrible. And then for people who are selling the product, it is $159 a year absolutely horrendous. Uh, Now the top rank, of course, just like almost every single income disclosure statement, it's less than 1% of people at the top of the company and they're making upwards of six figures. And then, and again, just like every MLM, just like the network marketing industry in general, the average profit is zero. And that is from the FTC themselves. Of course, you can do your own research with that. Just please do make sure that whoever you're getting information from is a credible source and where they are getting their information from is a credible source as well. Shanann's story seems to be really interesting, at least in my eyes, is because she lived so much of her life online, Facebook live streams being the main outlet that she would use. Multi-level marketing companies like Lavelle Thrive, Paparazzi, and Prove It, and obviously others, but those are the main three that come to my mind right now, really seem to rely heavily on Facebook live streaming. Since their main demographic is typically older females. And when I say older, essentially, I mean people who aren't in their 20s. Shanann really overshared constantly, just like most people in multi-level marketing companies, but not really their struggles unless it could be a selling point. For instance, she would share about her health condition, which was lupus, and she would push medical claims regarding results of the Thrive products, which obviously is not only illegal, but very unethical. Overall, it really seems like her Facebook page, her live streams, her albums, all that really showed a perfect American family next door. Now that we're done with all that, just wanted to get that out of the way, give you a little peep into Thrive. You know, they sell supplements, those little vitamin patches, health and wellness things in general. But I wanted to get that out of the way before we really go over the timeline of their relationship as a whole and what happened. With this one specifically, I think it's really important to understand the timeline. And really with any story that's, you know, there's any type of drawn out investigation or, you know, we know who did it and they're just lying the whole time and collecting evidence and things like that. So when things unfold like this story, it helps me personally 
to use a, a type of timeline structure when going over them. So in 2010, the couple met when Chris sent Shanann a Facebook friend request. Shanann grew up in New Jersey, but she later moved to North Carolina, where she and Chris met through social media. She said that she got a friend request from Chris on Facebook, and she thought, what the heck, I'm never going to meet him. Except one thing led to another, and eight years later, we now have two kids. We live in Colorado, and he's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Now, after two years of dating on November 3rd, Shanann and Chris got married. The couple tied the knot in Charlotte, North Carolina. And according to Chris, his family didn't attend. His mom and sister did not like Shanann at all. They did not have good relationships or really a relationship, period. According to him, his mom and sister thought that she was way too controlling and stealing him away from them. And even just from watching Shanann's Facebook videos, it does seem like she was the, quote, head of the household, so to speak, or like some people say, you know, they wear the pants in the relationship, ultimately just meaning that she was the more dominant one and he was, you know, a little bit more submissive, which is ironic since she was not at all and far from being the financial head of the household. A little bit over a year after they were married in December 17th, 2013, their first child, Bella, was born. Bella Marie Watts. Shanann was so excited to have her first baby girl. She spent every single moment thanking God and taking care of her precious gift that the Lord blessed her with. How she loved and cherished her girls is what her obituary said. In July 17, 2015, about a year and a half after that, they had their second little girl, Celeste, nicknamed Cece. Her obituary continued saying that Shanann was so excited to be able to have another child since she didn't really think that she would be able to because of her battle with lupus. She was determined to stay healthy, and she said that every moment with Cece was a blessing. Now, right before Celeste was born in June 2015, the Watts family files for bankruptcy. With a combined income of 90000 in 2014, in addition to credit card debt, student loans, and medical bills, the couple filed for bankruptcy in June 2015 stating that their $3,000 a month mortgage and their $600 a month car payments took up most of their $4,900 monthly expenses. Additionally, their homeowners association sued them for unpaid monthly fees. This aspect of this is just crazy to me because everything you see from her Instagram, again, we know this with multi-level marketing companies, what you're putting out into the world is so that you can show this perfect life and oh my gosh, this company did this for me and isn't this just amazing? And then the reality is your household income is lower than 90,000, which 90,000 is great, but it's lower than 90,000 and you're having almost as many expenses as monthly income and you're in massive amounts of debt. So again, this is one of the reasons why I find this case specifically so interesting because of how the MLM and that culture and that quote mindset really push that and how it comes into play with this case specifically. Now on May 5th, 2018, we're two years later, Shanann posts a super sweet Facebook video that was about 32 minutes long. And she was talking about all about her family and how she loves waking up now on Saturdays and being able to enjoy her family and talking about how she's so excited for the upcoming summer in Colorado. And she said, I believe everything in life happens for a reason. And I also believe that people are placed in our lives for a reason too. 
and Chris and the girls can be seen in the background of the video playing. Now, about a month after that, on June 11th, 2018, Shanann surprises Chris with the news that they're expecting. In a video later released by Nine News, Shanann's wearing a shirt that says, oops, we did it again, and surprises Chris with the news of their new pregnancy. He reacted by saying, that's awesome. And in that video, he thought that it was a girl because the lines on the test were pink on the pregnancy test, which she said twice in that video. No, that's just the color of the lines. We, we don't know the gender of the baby yet, or rather the sex of the baby. I don't know why that aspect of it or really that little moment was so cringy to me. For someone who's already had two children, shouldn't he have known that that's that that's not how that works. And that's not how the timeline of appointments and doctors and, you know, the the milestones of a pregnancy. And that's if he's been through it twice, shouldn't he know that? That personally gave me the feeling that he was checked out from the relationship and the family altogether. I personally think her losing money with Thrive, their separate debts that they have, which was just combined when they got married and started having kids, them maybe spending more money than they were bringing into the household and constantly posting to, of course, trying to make more money and market this, quote, boss way of business and put on this happy act of, oh, we're the perfect family, we're the perfect couple, we're doing so well. When you're not happy with your marriage and with your relationship and with your life and your finances are garbage, I feel like that really takes a huge toll on your psyche in general. Not only that, but on their relationship. And I I'm not blaming her at all for what happened to them. Obviously, it's horrible. That's awful. A divorce could have saved four lives in this case. I mean, five if you're counting him. But Chris did the unthinkable and the unforgivable, and he deserves to absolutely rot for eternity and have his toenails and fingernails ripped off slowly. I would say worse things, but I don't want to get demonetized. A week after surprising Chris with the news that they're expecting their third child. Shanann posts a Father's Day post to Chris on Facebook. Again, she was very, very, very active on Facebook. Of course, this was four years ago. Times have changed. I personally cannot stand Facebook. However, she went on to say, Chris, we're so incredibly blessed to have you. You do so much in our lives every single day for us, and you take such great care of us. You are the reason I was brave enough to agree to number three. From laundry to kids' showers, you are incredible, and we are so lucky to have you in our life. Happy Father's Day. That same month was the month where Chris starts talking to Nicole Kessinger. Nicole works at the same employer that Chris did. She would see him around the office, and Chris came by her office and struck up a conversation with her one day. It only took a month for them to take their friendship, their fling, their relationship outside of the office. Which leads us to July. A month later, Chris starts a physical relationship with Nicole. According to the Denver Post, Chris sees Kissinger about four or five times a week and they start a physical relationship in early July. He tells her that he's almost divorced, which according to Shanann, he was not almost divorced and not even separated. Clearly, they were. <laughs> she had just told him that he was about to have another kid with her. Later that month, while Shanann and the girls are out of town in North Carolina visiting family, he tells Nicole that the divorce is final, which again, clearly it was not. Insider reports that Nicole goes to Chris's home for the first time on the 4th of July. They also go on a date to Shelby American Collection Car Museum on July 14th, and then they spend the night in the Great Sand Dunes National Park on July 28th, all while his family is away on vacation. On July 30th, he gives her a love note before joining his family on vacation. Oh, I'm laughing because it's horrible. 
What a douche noodle. July 31st, Chris finally arrives to North Carolina and joins his family. And in the American Family Next Door documentary regarding this entire case, you can actually see that Shanann messages him and says, let me know when you're coming down the escalator at the airport so that she can film the girls like running up to him, which that in itself is just so, so cringy. I'm not, not a fan of that. Everything just seems so manufactured. But again, it's all his fault. He's the worst. Despite being on family vacation, Shanann was texting one of her friends all about the trouble between the couple. He was ignoring her. She could tell that he wasn't happy. They were not having sex. He was not catching on to little spicy signs that she was sending him. And she just felt very unloved. On August 4th, 2018, later that week, Nicole Kessinger shops for wedding dresses online. And this is essentially a month and a half or about two months into their, quote, relationship. It says that her cell phone data shows that she was looking at wedding dresses online for two hours. Now, that doesn't mean that she was necessarily shopping for wedding dresses. I can look at yachts and private planes online for two hours and I'm not shopping for one. So it could have just been, you know, she was really happy. She thought she found her person. She was feeling all romantical and giddy and was just looking at wedding dresses. Who hasn't fallen down a Pinterest rabbit hole? Later that week on August 9th, 2018, Shanann leaves town to attend the Lavelle Thrive Convention in Arizona. Now, at this time, they're already back home. They've already come back home from North Carolina. But Shanann leaves town with a friend, actually, because she has friends in her area that also are on her team or are her sideline sisters or her downline, however you want to phrase it. So she leaves Colorado and goes to Arizona for that convention. After confiding to her friends about all of the problems that her and Chris were having, she texted them, the friends, updating them and telling her and telling them that Chris and her had the best talk yet before they left for the trip. And Shanann even wrote a handwritten letter to him about how much happier she is and basically just being hopeful and optimistic regarding their relationship and their recent troubles. Hardly two days after Shanann left, on the 11th of August, Chris hires a babysitter and goes out on a date with Nicole. While Shanann is away, he's saying that he's going to a baseball game with coworkers, but he goes to a bar with Nicole instead. And he racks up a pretty hefty bill for just a date night out at a bar. And Shanann can see all of that because he uses their debit card to pay for that. And again, it's not like they were rolling in dough. They had all those alerts on. They were, I don't want to say they were pinching pennies, but they were quite aware of their finances and really seemed to notice every little transaction. So that aspect was pretty bold of him. And especially after they had that talk, seems like they were doing well and then goes out on a date right away. Just no remorse, this guy. Two days after that, on August 13th, 2018, 1.48 a.m., Shanann returns home from Arizona. A friend, a different Nicole, Atkinson gives Shanann a ride back to her house, and Shanann goes upstairs and goes to sleep. Chris wakes up early in the morning a few hours later. He wakes up Shanann as he's getting ready for work and wants to talk about their marriage, their future, and, and this is all according to his later confession. Despite Shanann carrying their unborn son, who had already been named Nico Lee, he tells her about his affair with Nicole Kessinger and essentially saying that him and her just aren't going to work out much longer and their, their marriage is falling apart and coming to an end and essentially that there's no way to reconcile it. Shanann tells Chris that he's never going to see the kids again and he responds by strangling her to death. Bella, their four-year-old, 
comes in and asks what's wrong with mommy. Chris wraps up Shanann in a blanket and carries her to his truck. He puts the two kids in the back seat and drives to the work site that he was assigned to that day. He then smothers Celeste in the back seat and puts her body in an oil tank and does the same with Bella in another oil tank. Chris also buries his wife's body in the ground nearby. All of this, like I said, he confessed later on from prison. Hours later, at about 1.40 p.m., Nicole Adkinson, Shanann's friend, starts to get concerned that she hasn't heard from Shanann. Apparently, I don't know how she knew this, but Shanann didn't show up for her doctor's appointment that morning, hadn't been responding to her. So she called the police and essentially wants them to do a wellness check. Shanann's phone, keys, purse, everything is found inside the house. According to news stations, Chris claims that she said that she was going to a friend's house with the kids. And that's the last thing I heard. And that was it. It was very vague. The next day on August 14th, Chris pleads for his family to return on the local news. As the Colorado Bureau of Investigation issued an endangered missing alert, Chris talks to Denver's ABC affiliate and pleads for them to return back to him. Shanann, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, please just come back. If somebody has her, please just bring them back. I need to see everybody. I need to see everybody again. This house is not complete without anybody here. Please bring them back. On August 15th, 2018, Chris fails a polygraph test and then admits to killing his wife. But he says that she smothered the girls, and that's why he killed her. And he confessed to his dad, Ronnie, before confessing to officials. And this is the part that really irks me. First of all, he did all of this without a lawyer. Listen, if you're guilty, if, even if you're innocent, I don't care. Always, always, always ask for a lawyer. Again, he's a horrible person. He deserves to rot. Not even in prison, in hell. Should have killed him. Drastic, I know, but there's babies involved here. I just cannot imagine why he agreed to take a polygraph test and why he put on this show and just kept lying and lying and lying and was so public about it. But I really do think, again, that just goes into the narcissistic behavior of it, thinking, okay, well, I'm going to get away with it. I don't think any of this was pre planned. I do think he just snapped in the moment. However, he is a gross human being. I do think that he was really a, a liar. I don't know if it, uh, he would be considered a pathological liar, but he's disgusting. I think he was really trying to punish her. He liked having, you know, both lives. He didn't necessarily want to be married to her and continue the relationship with her, but he still wanted to be able to see his kids, but have, you know, this fun life that he was having with Nicole Kessinger as well. Two days after he's pleading for his family to return to him on the news. And one day after he confesses to everything and fails the polygraph test, on August 16th, Shanann, Bella, and Celeste's bodies are found. The bodies are recovered at Chris's work site. That same day, Chris appears in Weld County Court for a bond hearing. He is denied. On the same day, Kessinger speaks to police saying, I legitimately think his cheese was sliding off his cracker long before he met me. Essentially saying, I think he was losing his shit before he met me. I have nothing to do with this. And she did not tell him to do anything. I do think it's very interesting, though. While the girls were missing in that two-day span, she did text him and say, if you have anything to do with this, if you know anything about it, please go to the police. And he texted her back saying, I did not hurt my family or something along those lines. And she says that's the last time they talked. However, it does seem that she did write him in prison just to really get closure for the whole situation, which I can't really blame her. 
I do think that Nicole is a victim in all of this as well. You can't really blame the other woman if they're not getting the full truth. On August 21st, 2018, Chris is charged with first degree murder a week after he pleaded for their safe return. He's charged with three counts of first degree murder, plus two additional first degree charges for the victims being 12 years old or under. Additionally, he faced another count of unlawful termination of a pregnancy since Shanann was pregnant, plus three counts of tampering with a body, a total of nine charges. In September 1st of 2018, a funeral is held for Shanann and her daughters in North Carolina. Shanann, Bella, and Celeste are all remembered at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Pinehurst, North Carolina, during the 90-minute ceremony, which started with a singing of Amazing Grace, Chris is never mentioned, rightfully so. The priest reads a statement from Shanann's father, Frank, you are nothing but pure love, always caring for everyone. You will always be daddy's little girl. Over two months later, Chris pleads guilty to all nine counts. Shanann's family requests that he does not get the death penalty. On November 19th, 2018, Judge Marcello Kopkow calls the murder spree, quote, perhaps one of the most inhumane and vicious crimes I have ever handled out of the thousands of cases I have seen, issuing five life sentences without the possibility of parole, including 45 years for unlawful termination of, of Shanann's pregnancy and 36 years for the disposing of the bodies of his family. Before the end of 2018 and on the third day of December, Chris is transferred to a Wisconsin correctional facility due to safety concerns. Not too far into the next year, 2019, on the 18th of February, Chris confesses to killing his daughters in a detailed explanation in the form of a five-hour interview from prison. Chris recounts the harrowing details of his young daughter's final moments and confesses to killing them and disposing of their bodies. This was like the epitome of being angry and the epitome of showing a rage, the epitome of losing your mind, he says, even admitting that his older daughter Bella asked if he was going to do the same thing he did to his sister and that the four-year-old tried to fight back. I don't know about you guys, but that was just very hard to read. <laughs> After just reading that or hearing that and the whole thing where he killed Shanann at the house, then put her body in the car, then took the girls there, drove all the way, it was not right around the corner, drove all the way to the work site. All of that time passes. You're still in that rage. You've still snapped. You have time to calm down. So again, I don't think he's in his right mind. And as Nicole Kessinger says, his cheese had slipped off of his cracker well before this. Again, just as a reminder, I know I've said it about five times already, but Chris Watts just serves to rot and to have unspeakable, painful things happen to him. On November 18th, 2019, Chris is ordered to pay Shanann's parents $6 million. And of course, this is from the civil suit that they filed. Now that's $3 million total for each death and then $3 million for, quote, emotional pain. And that amount will grow with 8% interest. Now, the thing that stinks is that he obviously, he's in he's in prison. He's not making money, most likely. Their house is owned by the bank. They were in massive amounts of debt. And so his parents are most likely never going to get any money. However, it prevents Chris from profiting from the murders in any way. So for instance, if he was going to like sell his rights to the story or something like that, all of that money would go to Shanann's parents. So Typically, people file suits like that so that the guilty party, whoever, the person that hurt them essentially, is not able to 
profit off of it, make any money off of it. And of course, why else would you sell the rights to anything unless you're Anna Delvey and you just want to be famous? Now, that is where the story really ended. There weren't many updates at all until, obviously, the two or three specials, documentaries, series came out about this entire thing. And then, of course, more articles and things like that came out. But it really died down after a few months until 2020. Over the past few weeks, there have been so many articles written about the texts to the mistress, Nicole, because a video of her interview has been made public. And before, like I said, it's just not being made public. It wasn't released back then. So in a text to his mistress, just hours after he killed his pregnant wife and children, Chris Watts denies having anything to do with their disappearance, according to the previously unreleased footage of the woman's interview with police. In the video, Nicole, who worked with Chris, of course, like we said, and had about a two or three month affair with him, She can be seen speaking candidly with investigators about the last time she spoke with Chris after his family vanished. At one point, she said, I didn't see any red lights, meaning red flags, that would have led her to believe that he was planning on killing his family. Again, I don't think he was planning it. I think he just, quote, snapped and then just continued to snap kill everybody. She said, so I texted Chris one last time and told him, if you did anything bad, you're going to ruin your life and you're going to ruin my life. I promise you that. And he responded, I didn't hurt my family, Nikki. And that was the last text. I never said another word to him after that, she said. Now, it seems like Chris Watts has a lot of thirsty, strange, delusional, unhinged, crazy women I don't like to use that word crazy, but if you are going to be drooling and fantasizing and be interested in someone who killed his entire family, you're weird and you're crazy. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now, regarding fan mail, he receives so much and there's one there's one person who it's just fascinating that she really thinks like she thinks. A former prison psychologist is defending her, quote, close relationship with Chris Watt, whom she feels is innocent. Clearly, he's not innocent. Krista Riccello was one of the many who sent the family annihilator fan mail after he murdered his pregnant wife, Shanann, and their two daughters. According to a press release for Lifetime's cellmate secrets, Chris Watts, which explore his life behind bars and the bond that he formed with Krista. Chris still receives an overwhelming amount of fan mail behind bars. And when his cellmate Dylan Tallman responded on his behalf to a fan letter from Krista, it was the beginning of a close and intimate relationship between the trio. The 42-year-old former prison psychologist, I wonder why it's former and not current, probably because she's crazy. She's crazy. She is adamant that Chris Watts is innocent. And she's currently writing a book with both him and his cellmate Dylan whom she is now engaged to. So, you know, she's doing great things. I don't even want to know what that guy's convicted of. (laughs) I find it very odd the way the entire case was handled, she says in the show, according to a clip obtained by E! Online. I've never seen a case in history that someone took a plea agreement so quickly, a case that was completely ended and not investigated. She says in the show that there's no way he could have committed these crimes, citing his devotion to religion and spirituality. Krista relates Krista relates in the show that she's drawn to people in prison and would visit her incarcerated father, who 
as the clip shows, bore a striking resemblance to Charles Manson. She claims that being attracted to notorious men is in her DNA and says that her mother was actually on the way to live with the Manson family on their California ranch before she met her dad. It's pretty interesting because my mom did stand up for Charles Manson and I'm standing up for Chris Watts, she says in the show. God, yikes. It is so creepy that this woman was a prison psychologist. Absolutely yikes. Big yikes. The biggest yikes. In interviews, she gets into her relationship with the two men who apparently consider themselves brothers. Although some suspect that there is more going on with these two men, I think they're a thruple. And then also I found this article that was saying that he is not a psychopath. And so I want to go over that quickly too. The true crime documentary, Chris Watts' Faking It Special, explores how he attempted to conceal his heinous deeds before eventually confessing to the crimes. In the show, forensic psychologist Carrie Danes shared her view that Chris Watts is not a psychopath. Rather, people like to tell themselves that he must be because it makes them feel more comfortable with what he's done. She went on to say, What I think is fascinating about this case and why it's so compelling to people is that this just looks like the family next door. And we want to believe that Chris Watts is an absolute through and through psychopath because it makes us feel more comfortable, but he's not. There is nothing in his history whatsoever that points to him being a psychopath. And you don't just become a psychopath in one or two days out of the year. He is an emotionally inadequate man. And emotionally inadequate men are part of the society that we live in. They are in our communities. And that is the thing that is truly unnerving about this case. He could be one of our neighbors. She does not think that the killings were due to an absence of morals or violent tendencies, but the result of a prolonged period of bottling up his stress. And I agree with that. I think he snapped. Carrie explains that if we want to understand Chris Watts, this seemingly perfect husband, then we need to understand how he deals with his stress. He bottles it up. So he is someone who doesn't cope well with his own intense emotions, and he doesn't really cope well with anyone else's intense emotions either. He tends to just nod his head, appease people, goes along with things, doesn't say how he's truly feeling, but the problem with that is it's a really good way to store up feelings of bitterness and resentment. This is what he was doing. So after hearing all of that, what type of family annihilator do you think that Chris Watts is? Is he the anomic killer? who sees the family as a status symbol, and once he does not have a use for them anymore, he kills them. It is the disappointed killer who punishes the family for not living up to his idea of what family life should be. The self-righteous killer who destroys the family to exact revenge upon the mother. Or finally, do we think that he's the paranoid killer like the last two were, who think that they are protecting the family from something even worse than death? So I go back and forth between him being the anomic killer and then also the self-righteous killer because he snapped when, as he says, when she said that he was never going to see the girls again. So I think that he was punishing her by, by killing her and just strangling her and out of just pure anger and resentment in that moment, but, but then going further to murder his daughters to essentially just eliminate them, to just eliminate his entire family, which obviously family annihilator. But I think it's very strange that he falls into two, essentially. Or really, he could be the disappointed killer too. And he's punishing the family for really just not fitting into the lifestyle that he wanted and because he wasn't happy with them. You know what? I changed my mind. He's a disappointed killer. <laughs> Let me know in the comments below on Instagram, on YouTube. Please let me know which kind you think that he is. I 
was really dreading doing this story. As you could tell, I took like a week and a half off of the podcast, but I was really not looking forward to it. This one is extra, extra awful. All of them are obviously, but I think because, you know, his his little girls were so just so young, obviously killing anyone of any age is horrible, absolutely unforgivable and horrible. But I think just because they were they were so little, I feel like it makes it even even harder to hear and go over. All right, that is it for this episode of Down a Rabbit Hole with your host, me, Cece Suarez. Feel free to follow us over on Instagram, Down a Rabbit Hole Podcast. Rate, like, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. I would be so excited and happy if you would leave us a five-star review. Someone left a review and said that I have a weird way of speaking. Anyways. I appreciate y'all so much. Thank you for being understanding of the little break that I needed to take. And we are going full steam ahead. So if you have any questions or suggestions, please do let us know either over on Instagram or via the email down a rabbit hole podcast at gmail.com. And we will see you on our next episode. The Down a Rabbit Hole podcast is produced by Chelsea Suarez, Wiggum Suarez, and Tony Suarez. All episodes are written and researched by Chelsea Suarez and Tony Suarez as well. Again, thank you to our channel members for making this happen. We really do appreciate the support. We will see you next time on another episode of Down a Rabbit Hole.